Welcome back to This Week in Ringer Sports. I'm Liz Kelly, bringing you the highlights from the Ringer Podcast Network. Big things happening on the site this week. After 12 years, Bill has returned to write the fifth edition of the Playoff Gambling Manifesto. We have everything you need to know about the NFL Wildcard Weekend and tons more. Be sure to check it out on TheRinger.com. Okay, we are starting this week with football. ESPN's Seth Wickersham released an article yesterday which detailed tension between Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. On the Bill Simmons podcast this week, Bill and Mike Francesa discussed the news. The part I didn't understand, and which makes no sense to anything that has happened in the last 17 years, is if Kraft told Belichick to trade Jimmy G, which is what this story basically says. That doesn't fly with anything that's happened in the entire time I've been following the Belichick Patriots. Kraft has never told Belichick what to do. Do you believe that part of the story? I find it hard to believe. I do know that something happened here because they loved Garoppolo. Everything we heard was how much they loved Garoppolo. They had found their future, and you knew that Tom thought he would play forever. Tom not only thinks he's going to live forever, Tom thinks he's going to play forever, which is something that Belichick's always thought quarterbacks don't live past 40, which is the conventional wisdom in the NFL. It's always been the conventional wisdom, and he hasn't played great this year. You know what? It's an amazing thing. He's done enough in this very weird NFL season to be voted the MVP. But let's be honest, down the stretch, he has not been great. Uh, you know, he, he's done enough to win these games, but he has not been Brady-like in a lot of these games. I agree. And he has shown his age in some of these games. He really has, especially whenever anybody has put any pressure on him. But that's what you would expect from a quarterback his age. You would expect the things you're seeing. The thing that is so is so intriguing here is what you said, is that would Kraft impose his will for Tom? Would Tom go to Kraft? Yes. Would Kraft impose his will on Belichick, or were there other things at work here, like Belichick moving on or something like that? We'll have to wait and see, because it, it, it got very weird. I don't believe... That's hard to believe. Also hard to believe is they ever offered him the amount of money that has been quoted in the story, a backup getting that, because that would have signaled to Tom that he's the future, which would have driven Tom crazy. All the stuff about Tom and Garoppolo is predictable, just like it was with Montana and Steve Young. These guys don't want to see or help their next guy. When they saw the real guy show up, when Young showed up, Montana knew what it was. When Garoppolo showed up, Brady knew what it was. He knew, here's the guy. Here's the guy that can replace me. And that's what caused the tensions. Forget the trainer. The trainer, the trainer to, to quote a godfather scene, the trainer is small potatoes, okay? The real crux of the matter is here is that Brady finally saw his replacement in flesh and bone. Well, Engineer him being gone is another question. And you left out a crucial part of this. Once upon a time, Brady was Jimmy Garoppolo. Yes, he, he was. He in no, two thousand one. Scorned. He yeah. Thing, Bill. He's never gotten over being replaced by Drew Henson at Michigan as a senior. Right. He's never gotten over that scar his whole life. It's actually driven him. It's actually what has fueled the Brady phenomena. It made him work hard. It made him go from being the worst bodied quarterback to ever come through an NFL draft, ever. I know guys who did that. One of my best friends in the world, Dr. Steve O'Brien, who his family said he was the worst-looking quarterback prospect I ever gave a physical to. And he came. He became Tom Brady because he worked and he lifted and he did everything he had to do and threw a 1,000 passes a day and he became Tom Brady, was driven by 
you are driven by that benching, and it made him who he was. It's it's what drives him today. Brady is driven, but you know what? Anyone who accomplishes anything is driven. Right. Being driven is what makes you accomplish things. Right, and what and having an ego is one of the reasons that you become Enormous. successful. Enormous. Brett so, Musburger taught me many, many years ago when I was a young kid. He said, show me talent that doesn't have an ego, and I'll show you bad talent. Let me throw a theory that's basically a twist of what we read in that piece, because I don't believe Kraft told Belichick to trade him. I, I just don't believe it. I don't believe Belichick would do it. I think he would rather quit over do something because the owner told him to do that. And by the way, this is how Kraft got into trouble 20 plus years ago with Parcells and yeah. he learned his lesson. And he was always after that, you know, I hire these people, they do what they think. Here's what I think happened. And I, th- and I do think Belichick realized that he had to trade Jimmy for a variety of reasons. I think we had talked about it before that back in April, when he had a chance to trade him, he's looking at the finish line with Brady He's looking at the next 15 years potentially with Garoppolo, who everybody thinks is going to be really good and who proved that he was really good. And he was basically took the wait and see approach. I'm going to give this one more year. I expect Brady to probably have some attrition. And eventually this will move toward Jimmy G being the guy. Here's the problem with that. First of all, as you said, Brady knew from 2001, he knows what it's like to be the other guy. But then second, you know, Brady's 40 years old. He's also has nothing in common with basically anybody in that locker room anymore. He's much older than everyone else on the team, except for maybe two or three guys. Jimmy G learned from him. He's in there every day. He's the first guy to leave, uh, first guy to show up, last guy to leave, just like Brady was. He's hanging out with the offensive linemen, just like Brady used to in 2002. He's thrown to all the receivers all the time, just like Brady did. And Brady's a massive celebrity. Brady's doing the TB12 thing. He's in and out. He's, he's basically kind of ascended the team. He almost became too famous to hang out with these guys day in, day out. And I think Garoppolo is really starting to win the locker room over. And my theory is that this was really starting to bother Brady. And the reason Belichick made this trade wasn't because Kraft told him to. I think he saw that there was a real locker room problem that was brewing. And as you know from Belichick, Anytime there's a problem, anytime he sees something that he thinks is going to affect the team, the season, the Super Bowl chase, whatever, he cuts it. He gets rid of it. And he obviously looked at this and thought that he had to trade Jimmy when he did. Next up, the College Football Playoff National Championship is an all-SEC affair, with number three Georgia taking on number four Alabama. On Ringer University, Ben Glixman and Roger Sherman break down the keys to the game. What do you think is the biggest factor that's going to determine who wins and who loses on Monday night? As we said, Alabama's offense did not actually play that well while stomping Clemson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia's defense is just as good. They they didn't look it in the first half against Oklahoma, but then they really turned on the heat and actually made one of the best offenses in the country look bad for a half plus. And... Ooh, Jalen Hurts did throw two touchdowns, but you, I, we're still shaky on him, aren't we? Jalen Hurts, so just to run down his stats for that game, he went 16 of 24 in the Sugar Bowl for 120 yards and two touchdowns. He did not make any mistakes, which as the Alabama quarterback, that is the most important thing. But he also only averaged five yards per attempt. So it's not like he was blowing people away with what he did to Clemson. And he had he had a big run of 19 yards, but still only got 40 on the game. Mm-hmm. On eleven, on eleven carries, uh, they they weren't. 
I still don't know whether Alabama's offense can do anything against a good defense. In fact, I would say after this game against Clemson, it, you know, that that was another tick in the argument you made last week that Jalen Hurts against a good defense doesn't necessarily put up great stats, doesn't necessarily do national championship related things. Yeah, there were uh, there were some rumors floating around before the game that uh, Tua Tagovailoa, my uh, my one true love, was going to enter the game. But... Do you guys realize what happened to Ben here on on Monday night? Like you got so excited when people said that Tua was going to be playing, you can barely focus on the Rose Bowl, which was a pretty good game. Turns because out because you were just like so hyped about Tua coming into the game. I had game. to watch highlights of him uh, torching Vanderbilt. The, the pass against Vandy. <laughs> yeah, so exciting times. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think the key to the game for me is Jake Fromm, and it's actually sort of for the same reason that you said because. Georgia is going to have an easier time slowing Alabama than it did slowing Oklahoma. It's easier to slow literally anybody in college football than (laughs) it is to slow Oklahoma, right? So uh, Jalen Hurts, if he doesn't make mistakes, that is the most important thing, right? When he turned the ball over in the first drive of the second half against Clemson, they kicked the field goal. That was the really the only moment in the game where it seemed like, okay, Clemson has a real chance to win this game before that giant 14-point swing that happened just minutes later. Um, But yeah, so I think... Georgia is going to have Georgia is going to be able to stop Alabama's offense. There's going to be a lot of punts in this game. The thing is, Georgia's running backs are not going to have the holes that they had to run through that they did against the Sooners. Right? Alabama's defense is going to say, "We know that Nick Chubb is good. We know that Sony Michelle is good. We're not going to give you guys 50 and 75 yard runs basically at will." So to me, that means it's going to come down to Jake Fromm and whether he can add another dimension to this offense to see if Georgia really has what it takes to win the game. Don't you say the phrase, there's going to be a lot of punts in this game to me without driving me into a tizzy. (laughs) You know, I mean, between the possibility of Tua and between all the punts, this game is built for us, man. This is is going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be horrible. But but like when we talked about Oklahoma-Georgia really being like a matchup of two stylistically completely different teams, you know, when we're looking at the keys for each team here, they're pretty much the same. You know, it's like, can Jake Fromm slash Jalen Hurts actually do anything against a good opponent? Can X incredible defense stop Nick Chubb and Stony Michelle? Stony Nick Chubb and <laughs> Sony Michelle, or you know, Damian Harris and Bo Scarborough. You know, they they both have the same things going on. They're they're very similar teams and. It's tough to pick. Next, Wild Card Weekend is here, and this week on the Ringer NFL Show, Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, and Danny Kelly have some fun discussing playoff teams in an imaginary scenario with Blake Bortles at QB. Hey, Mays, would Blake Bortles improve the Eagles? Oh, my God. (laughs) Maybe. I just feel like with Bortles, the unpredictability factor is not good when the rest of your team is that good. That's how I feel. I feel the same way about Jacksonville. So... I would not like to watch Blake Bortles with the Eagles because the rest of that team is too good. If you put Blake Bortles on every single NFL team, who would win the Super Bowl? Would it be the Eagles? Yeah, I think it'd be the Eagles. Uh, that's the question there is just who is the best roster? If, it, if, the, if the playoffs were just 12 Blake Bortles. I think it's still the Eagles. The Eagles. I think the Eagles have the best roster. Yeah. I think the Jags are close. I think Pittsburgh is right there, but I, I think the Eagles are there. I think the Eagles are number one. Which is really unfortunate that the Eagles can't win a playoff game. (laughs) I can't believe we've gotten to that point. 
So like you all have been hearing, a lot of playoff football is happening this weekend. So Cousin Sal and the Degenerate Trifecta are here to discuss gambling props on Against All Odds for Wildcard Weekend and the College Football Playoff Championship game. I, I try to make this like a feminine prop, girly, Todd Gurley against Sony Michelle. And I think it was lost in trend. They just put Gurley against Michelle. Brother Bry, you have a uh, an opinion on this. Gurley is minus seven and a half yards rushing over Sonny Michelle. What do you like? Yeah, I like Gurley minus seven and a half in this one. Look, they both average about eighty-seven yards a game. But I don't know if you, Sonny Michelle. I mean, had the monster game the other day. But his over/under, I think, was about seventy-three in that Oklahoma game. Although he had one hundred and eighty-one yards, I mm-hmm. think. In this game, I'm guessing his over-under against Bama is probably going to be about like low 60s because he doesn't get more than about – I think the most he had is 16 carries a game in one game this year, maybe in, in two. And he'll be facing Alabama's defense, which is number one in the country. Uh, they only give up 92 rushing yards a game and only 2.7 yards per carry. So I think, uh, you know, he going up against that terrible defense Oklahoma had last week, I, I don't expect a huge game from him. I, I don't necessarily expect a huge game from Gurley either because Atlanta's really good against the run as well. But you know, Gurley's still going to get his 18 to 22 carries, and I expect him to be in like the – you know the upper seventies at least. He'll he'll get one carry of like twenty five to thirty yards. So yeah, uh, I I don't know. I, I when you said minus seven and a half, I'm I'm thinking Gurley's over under is probably going to be between seventy five and eighty, and Sony Michelle is probably going to be about. I think it's going to be low sixty. So I think you're getting some value here with Gurley minus seven and a half. Yeah, I so think I like so too. I think it's uh I think like you said, Gurley may have twice as many carries as Sony Michelle, at least ten or twelve more, and uh, that translates to minus seven and a half. That should be a good bet. Uh, Harry, I also have a prop up there: highest margin of victory in the wild card games. Uh, Bills, Jags plus one seventy five. Titans, Chiefs two to one. Falcons, Rams plus two seventy five. Panthers, Saints three to one. Which way are you going with this? You know, I like <clears throat> I like the Titans and the Chiefs at two to one. Uh, to have the highest margin of victory. I think the Chiefs really might just roll the Titans. Marcus Mariota's had 15 picks this year. Uh, he's had bad second halves in games that cost them. Cost them. Uh, it, he had uh, four picks in a primetime Thursday night game against Pittsburgh that cost them the second half in the game. Uh, at Arizona, he only mustered 159 yards when they needed a win late in the season, and he had two picks in that game. So it could turn real ugly real quick for the Titans. They're 23rd in the NFL in offense. Uh, if you can, I think the key is if you shut down Delaney Walker, you'll force Mariota into a lot of uncomfortable situations. Uh, Alex Smith, Smith can put up numbers. Uh, he had 26 touchdowns, only five picks this year. I think KC is back on track, winning four games in a row and averaging 29 points a game in their last five. So I think, and they're the fifth best offense. In, in the NFL, I think Kansas City might just roll the Titans if, it, if Mariota plays poorly. Okay, finally moving on from football to basketball, the LeBron and Kyrie split came back into the spotlight this week with ESPN's Jackie McMullen's in-depth article on Kyrie. On Sources Say, Chris Ryan and Juliet Littman discuss the feature. Check it out. This morning, Jackie Mack on ESPN.com dropped a big Kyrie feature. And you, just every time you think maybe Kyrie is like wrapped up like his his speech that he's mm-hmm. been giving this season, he just dials up some more stuff. She did. I, I guarantee or I can't guarantee it, but I would strongly um, 
believe that he probably said some like weird like earth is flat stuff that she just didn't print well let me just say i think jackie mack might be my favorite basketball writer i think so too i i totally agree she doesn't um there's not the same kind of like sentimentality, like no. it doesn't drench her writing, which I'm so sick of. Yeah. And she gets she obviously gets really good access. And um, she had more like named sources than any profile I can remember. Said, in there's also history. like a grace and a calmness yes. to like her writing that I really respect. Yeah, there's, to right no, now. there's no sort of like, here's my big drop, like read it up, bitches. Right. right. She's like <laughs> I can't imagine if Jackie McMullen was like, here's my drop, bitches. <laughs> She's, she really is like a, yeah. like the, the model for these kinds of stories. I can't believe the two people who host a podcast that starts with an alarm and is just about like sources say <laughs> and screamed about Baron Davis and Laura Dern for 10 minutes are like, it's really all about the grace with which Jackie McMullen well, handles herself. I like how she names her sources. There's, I do too. There's very few unnamed in there and that is increasingly rare in the NBA. I only had to wonder like one time, like, huh, I wonder who said this. So this is an interesting piece because I really encourage people to read it because it kind of begins as a Kyrie profile. Yes. And most of the times what happens when you get like a profile going is there is a tacit agreement with the subject that at least in sports media, that things are going to be somewhat told from that subject's perspective, right? Or that they, it's not going to be necessarily all flattering, but that a lot of the stuff is going to be filtered through their lens. And what's interesting about this piece is that it's initially about Kyrie and it's about Kyrie's life really. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of gets into Cleveland and it kind of changes perspective a little bit. And it's more about not only like what he was frustrated by in Cleveland, but maybe what was frustrating about him in Cleveland. Yes. So there's a specific scene where they were running, uh, so they were playing in practice and Ty Lue came up to Kyrie Irving and was just like, you got to slow, you, you need to speed up the yeah, play, like so we can get speed more up shots. the tempo so we can get more shots. It's just basically, and Kyrie was just and like, he said specifically for RJ and JR. Yes. And Kyrie's just basically like, I can get shots no matter what tempo. Like I don't need to play at a fast tempo. Like I can get, cause he can create space like yeah. at a, from a standstill. And Tyler is like, well, it's for other players on the team. It's about getting the ball to these guys. And he goes, that's LeBron's job. He says that's number 23's job. Right. He doesn't even say LeBron. Right. Um, which is fascinating. Yes. Sounds like a, a real prick. Yes. And, yeah. Or, and also somebody who was just thinking about things from their perspective of like, I know what I'm capable of. It's up to these other guys to be capable of it as well. Yeah. And also like, this is another guy's job. It's also very sort of like, um, like without emotion, like this is what I do here. This yeah. is what he does. And like, I'm going to do my thing and he does his. Well, I get, what it was really fascinating to me about this piece though. And it's something that I don't think goes remarked upon a lot because this is a pretty unique trade in a lot of ways, like at least in terms of the way it's been talked about afterwards. Cause if you think back from other, some of the other things where people have forced themselves off teams, like whether it was PG last year with the Pacers mm-hmm. or Mello, even back from the Nuggets days, like when Mello basically was like, this is where I, I just want to get out of here. And this is where I want to go. And you should trade me now. Um, this Kyrie trade is, it seems like a lot more rooted in Kyrie's conception of himself and it has like a real kind of normalcy to it where you're like, oh yeah, maybe you were just tired of being in this specific situation. And it sounds like almost going to the finals took away some of the luster of being in Cleveland. For sure. Him. It's like sort of like he got to the mountaintop. Yeah. There. It's like, what else can I really do here with LeBron? Yeah. There's a couple of anecdotes about how he's always like looking for a new challenge. Um, 
I forget which one of his team, former teammates said it, but it was like he he or he asked Amon Shumpert to ambush him in the layup line before yeah. game so yeah. he could like practice his and finishes. And he was like, Kyrie makes things harder on himself yeah. on purpose. Yeah. And um, there's a, also a great anecdote at the beginning about when he first meets Michael Kidd Gilchrist in high school mm-hmm. and how he just sort of like brings it to him. And Kyrie just seems like a loner who wants to like be his best and like test himself, yeah. which is not doesn't necessarily lend itself to being a great teammate. Though it does seem like he has quite a few... Like he's still friendly with the former Cavs. Yeah, players. for sure. I, I think none, none of these things are as soap opery as they probably come off in, yeah. in print. I think that also one thing this piece does is it's it been rumored for a while that Kyrie was pissed that the Cavs thought about trading him for, to for get the Paul first George. time to get Eric Bledsoe. Yeah, and yeah. when Daniel were still and there, and because Eric Bledsoe is a clutch client, yeah, it was like LeBron pulling the strings, and LeBron has openly said like that's in, that's nuts. That's not true. Yeah, yeah. Um, that had been rumored for a while. I don't think it'd been committed to print before, but yes. so it's sort of like almost like a yeah. I think now, Windhorse had talked about it. Like yeah. people have talked about it, but it was it's been mentioned, but it hasn't been like confirmed or like sources like this kind of like sourcing or whatever. Yeah. So now it's like part of the record. That's kind of interesting. It changes the timeline of how we think about the Kyrie trade a little bit. And it also like one of my big takeaways for this as a Kyrie defender is like, like Dan Gilbert just breeds chaos. Like that's kind of like underlying the, the Cleveland section. Yeah. Where she's like, she, you know, Jackie points out that he never extends any of his GMs and, um, she he met Gilbert met with Kyrie and his agent Jeff Wexler and then he went to Vegas for summer league and that's when all the details came out mm-hmm. and like all the basketball world is in Vegas, Vegas. together yes. and it just sort of made it, it It actually I thought in some ways absolved Kyrie a little bit and also absolved LeBron and just made it seem like the Cavs were a mess over the summer Moving on to soccer, Liverpool FC acquired Virgil van Dijk from Southampton for 75 million pounds. So in this next clip from Ringer FC, we have Chris Ryan, Donnie Kwok, and Ryan O'Hanlon discussing the deal and its impact. Virgil van Dijk is the next Franz Beckenbauer. I think we should let a non-Liverpool fan talk about this first. Yeah, let's hear. If by Beckenbauer you mean Lovren? <laughs> Dan, no, I mean, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I... Uh, you know, we talked about this as it was happening, and I think the $75 million price tag was the major talking point because it wasn't a surprise. We all knew that the player wanted to go to Liverpool. Liverpool wanted the player. Uh, I was kind of uh, needling you guys a little bit because both of you guys were defending the move, which I get it. It's a defensible move because you got a player that you need. But I remember in uh, Transfer Saga's past, how you guys would laugh when someone like Thomas Lamar, his price would double overnight. But the difference is, of course, Arsenal doesn't get the player. And and Jose Mourinho actually, in commenting about this move, said ultimately it's all about getting the player, which I agree with. And and the price at that point is just the market, and it's kind of moot when, once the deal is done. I think that... Yeah, obviously, I just don't care. It's not my money. If yeah. they can afford it, if this isn't like auger some sort of leads like collapse through the, the the leagues, then I really don't care what they pay. If they feel like this is the guy they wanted, if Klopp has had tunnel vision for Van Dyke for such a long time and he's identified him as the perfect center back for the way he wants to play, it's the weakness of the team. I think, arguably, aside from keeper, and I I don't I don't I don't care about the fee. I do think. To, to sort of not agree with Donnie, but to just sort of put out a word of caution, <laughs> yeah. is I don't really understand how transfers are going to work going forward. It's it's tough. So we're a couple minutes, basically, before we started recording. The Guardian put out a story saying that Liverpool is going to demand 
130 million pounds for Philippe Coutinho. You know, there's not much new information other than it says that a deal could be struck for Coutinho to leave this summer, but they could strike the deal now. But supposedly, Coutinho actually wants to leave in January. Who knows? That's Ni- Nike wants Coutinho. Yeah, to leave exactly. In Nike, well. who uh, just leaked a Coutinho to Barcelona announcement over the weekend accidentally. Um, so it's hard to. So the Neymar move happened. That's what we're all sort of still talking about, right? The crazy Neymar move happened this summer. Um, and the move that they mentioned in this Guardian piece that I think is kind of important here is the Dembele move, where yeah. Barcelona sold Neymar, but then bought Dembele for however much money yeah, was it, 90-something. Yeah, a little bit less than what Liverpool wants for Coutinho. So Barcelona hasn't spent all of the Neymar money, right? And so there's a chance that the Van Dijk money is Liverpool spending the Coutinho money before mm-hmm. they actually get it, right? Um, and if that's the case, the Van Dyke move is going to be this sort of spike, and the Coutinho move is going to be a spike. But I think once that money gets sort of parceled out to everyone, I don't know if I see these prices staying that high. That's the thing I'm trying to figure out, is because if you're... So they, they want more money for Coutinho than Barca paid than them Dortmund got for Dembele. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So they pay 75 for Van Dyke. How much will Spurs demand for Alderweireld? You know what I mean? Like well, yeah. I mean, when does if you keep if you say like well if the, if this is like a baseball style market where there are people like like if you sub in Jorge Mendez for Scott Boris and they're like this guy sets the market. You know, I now this center backs who are under 30 who are this good make this are, are worth this much money. I don't understand what you're going to do if if Benucci moves. You yeah, know what I mean? I know I Benucci's say. a little older, but like, I, what do you do when you get like? I mean, this kid Umtiti from from uh, Barcelona, like he has a 50 million buyout, but he looks better than all these guys. Yeah. So if you if you judge it that way, and Umtiti has that buyout, it's like someone should just pay the buyout, right? You know, right? Well, that's part of the reason why the Van Dyke thing is so it's such an outlier because it's. You can sort of justify these prices for like Coutinho or, or Neymar or Mbappe because you're buying not only offense but potential. And this is like a need yeah. buy at that premium price, which does, as you're saying, Chris, like it, it, it begs the question of like how much these other defenders are going to be worth moving forward. Next up, University of Oklahoma freshman guard Trey Young has quickly become one of the biggest names in college basketball. And in this clip from One Shiny Podcast, Joe Castiglione, athletic director of University of Oklahoma, is the inspiration for Mark Titus and Tate Frazier's Good Guy, Bad Guy segment. I'm going with Oklahoma athletic director Joe Castiglione. Um, And the reason is this, Tate. This man was hired as Oklahoma's athletic director, I believe, in 1998. Mm. Uh, since then he has now, I, I just, it just all came to me as I was watching the college football playoff and I'm watching Trey Young go nuts. Since this man was hired as athletic director, they have had, and stick with me here, uh, Heisman trophy candidates, Josh Heupel, who did he win? The, he won the Heisman, right? What? Did he really? No, he didn't. No, no he, didn't. he no. didn't win the Heisman. God, if he did, then anybody can. No, I'm thinking of uh, Jason White. That's the guy. Yeah, that won the Jason Heisman. White. Yes, Jason yes. White. I get those two mixed up. So he has Hypo. <laughs> Hypo was a Heisman finalist, though. I yes. swear he's a Heisman finalist. Yeah, he was. He, he has was. Jason White. Adrian Peterson was a Heisman finalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, who else am I missing? Sam Bradford, Sam Bradford wins the Heisman. Yep. Baker Mayfield wins the Heisman. 
On top of that, since this man was hired, uh, Blake Griffin wins National Player of the Year. Yep. Buddy Hill wins National Player of the Year. Trey Young's about to win National Player of the Year. Oklahoma's won a football national championship. They went to the, the Final Four uh, in basketball. They've been to a few BCS title games. They went to the Final Four this year. This man is is dropping bags left and right. Um, it, it finally all clicked at like how insane it is that we're about to have three National Players of the Year from Oklahoma in basketball. In, in like a 10-year span. And and so I wanted to give a shout-out to, to Joe Castiglione. And he just got the whole Jordan deal done. So basically, Blake Griffin comes back to Oklahoma and is like, here's everything Jordan you could ever want. So, you know, enjoy recruiting kids for the next 20 years saying, hey, you want those Concord Jordan 11 grays? Yeah, we got them here. Here you go. You can have them. Welcome to Oklahoma. You can play basketball for us. So he's got a whole deal it's, set in place. That was a huge thing for them. Uh, there's, yeah, Oklahoma. If you're Texas right now and you get to watch Oklahoma, you're just like, what are we doing wrong? How, how have they figured it out? But they have. In our last clip of the week, we have the ringers David Shoemaker and Bleacher Report's David Schilling discussing the Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho match at Wrestle Kingdom 12. I thought it was a really good show. I, 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 I should say now I didn't watch the whole show. I watched the two mains and... Uh, Caught highlights of the rest. That's okay, man. You are hashtag with a life. Yeah, that's true. I get it. Um, Very much with a life this week. I was so into the Kenny Omega-Chris Jericho match that I almost had an inverse reaction to it, where I was just like, why can't we have this kind of wrestling on in WWE? I paid attention so much more than I usually do. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, let me see what's on Twitter, or let me say something silly about the show. I didn't want to tweet during the match. I wanted to just watch the match. Granted, I was watching it this morning yeah, because I tried to watch the show last night and it was right after a Laker game and I had, I had to write about the game and it was two in the morning and I just, I was done. <laughs> I was yeah. done. So I got, I got to the, um, I got to the never open weight six man tag and, uh-huh. and I, I, uh, I tapped out, but, uh, it was, it was a really fun match. Uh, I think, there are a couple of things that I didn't like. Number one, the the confusion about the rules. It's a no DQ match. See, I we've, wasn't confused. We've established that. Yeah. Then we say, okay, so you can't, there's no rope break from a submission. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. But Kenny hits the one-winged angel yeah. on Jericho by the ropes. Jericho grabs the rope mm-hmm. to break the, break the pin. Yes. So why is that allowed? Because when you... We're getting. We're gonna go deep. Cave. I don't even know if this is a kayfabe. We're, we're we're going deep here because when your hand is on the rope, you're no longer in the in the ring. Right. It's not a falls count anywhere match. Right. It's just a no DQ match. Got it. So there. I think there was once where Jericho broke the walls of Jericho when Omega was on the ropes, and there's some confusion. I, I and when I was watching it, I read it as as the ref broke the hold, but. Uh, I think you can read it as Jericho just got tired and, you know, like it's the, he, he, the exertion was on him too. And, and Omega was, was, you know, on the ropes was helping alleviate some of that, whatever. Um, and Jericho did yell at the, at the ref. This is, it's a no DQ match, stupid or whatever. Like there was Jericho was, was, was holding his own. But on commentary, Kevin Kelly and Don Callis were saying, you can't break this hold with the ropes. It's a no DQ match. It's true. And then but he couldn't, but also I guess being outside the ring, Omega couldn't have lost the match there. Right. And then there was a count out. 
I don't understand why there is a count in a no DQ match. They spend I, so much of that match outside of the ring, which was cool because you don't see that very often in, in WWE. Right. A true like hardcore like brawl outside of the ring. But why why is Red Shoes counting? <laughs> is there going to be a count out in a no DQ match? Really? Yeah. Well. The I, title, didn't, the title I didn't mind. I didn't mind any of it, and I think that's why I didn't think too deeply about it until I realized people were all talking about it. I mean, it's like wrestling's full of fake rules. Yeah, but you want storytelling consistency. Anyway, the other thing that that kind of bugged <laughs> but the me. match was so good. Let's it was good. Okay, and and then there was another thing where it was clear that there was a problem with the blade job. Yeah, that Kenny was couldn't either couldn't find the the blade to get color or it just wasn't working because he he grabs red shoes and and Jericho goes to sort of do his like posing and then an official comes by and hands Kenny something or they have some sort of chat and then all of a sudden he's bleeding Mm -hmm. it just that felt weird to me but that's only because I was paying attention so much because I liked the match so much that's true Okay, that's the roundup for this week. I will be back next Saturday, but in the meantime, you can find the full-length versions of all of these podcasts and subscribe at theringer.com slash podcasts.